Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. I don't want to speak too soon and jinx it, but it seems like spring has finally sprung in this neck of the woods. In the last week, the chest-high snowbank in my front yard has shrunk to knee height, and the temperatures are finally consistently in the positive. There's nothing quite like the thaw after a particularly depressing and dark winter. After autumn, spring is probably my second favorite time of year, so full of promise and new beginnings. But you know what else is so full of promise? What really puts a spring in my step? Dark, disturbing, and nightmare-inducing fiction. It really warms the cockles of the heart, you know? And with a new round of submissions, just over the horizon, I can't help but feel that familiar tingle of anticipation. 
I mean, assuming it's not those damn brain spiders again. This submission period, though, is something a little more special than usual. Because we're fast approaching a pretty substantial milestone for Tales to Terrify. Episode 500. And as much as I'd like to pretend celebrating achieving an arbitrary yet delightfully round number isn't a big deal, well, it really kind of is. For those who have been with us for a while, or who have taken the perilous plunge of diving into the archives, you know we've been through our fair share of changes over the years. But while each age of the podcast has had its own unique character and quirks, one thing's remained consistent. The heart of the show. The fiction. Dark Tales of Terror simply produced without all the audio bells and whistles. Quality horror stories that really stick with you. So, with that said, this submission period, we're looking for something extra special. Some exceptional fiction to help us celebrate. So if you're a writer with a masterpiece squirreled away in an ancient vault, might be time to break the curse and crack that sucker open. And if you prefer to listen rather than write, that's okay. We'd love to hear from you, too. What authors would you kill to hear on our anniversary show? Who's your dream guest narrator? What dastardly delights would make the occasion extra special? We'd love your thoughts. Drop us a line on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or email us at editor at talestoterrify.com. And in the meantime, keep your ears, uh, peeled? For our submission announcement at the end of the month. Speaking of peeled ears, uh, we seem to have caught the discerning ears of a few listeners in the last while. I'd like to thank Kelbaby1, Desmond, and Waster60268 for your five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. It really does mean everything to us to know you're enjoying the show, and it's one of the most amazing ways you can help support the podcast. So thank you again so much. Since we're already in the Niagara, Ontario area, there's one more stop here I'd like to make before we move on. About a 20-minute drive from the falls is the town of Niagara-on-the-Lake. Situated on the shores of Lake Ontario, it's an area renowned for its wineries and theaters, but also for its history and hauntings, the lion's share of which seem to center on historic Fort George. Built in the final years of the 1700s, and almost completely destroyed in the War of 1812, the fort has since been reconstructed to allow curious visitors and history buffs to experience the past through tours and dramatic reenactments, complete with period costumes. And, of course, some of the most popular tours at the fort are the ghost tours. Started in the mid-90s by Kyle Upton, the tours began as an entertaining way to explore some of the different features of the park. Kyle was a scientist, though, and belief in the supernatural, for him, wasn't even a remote consideration when he first started. He'd heard rumors, of course, 
but they were nothing more than fanciful flights of imagination, surely. As the tours gained in popularity, though, so too did the reports of strange happenings at the fort. Disembodied voices, doors opening and closing on their own, human shadows with no bodies to cast them. The typical haunted fair. There have been so many stories, in fact, many of them quite consistent between tellings, that experience from tourists have begun to creep into the tours themselves. And it really didn't take that long before Kyle was forced to re-examine his position on entities from beyond the veil. When he'd first begun researching and running the tours, Blockhouse One was a building the group would pass by without a remark, just another structure on the way to the site's more noteworthy attractions. To his knowledge, nothing of note had ever happened there. But that soon changed. Kyle began hearing accounts of a shadowy figure standing in an upper window, a pitch-black silhouette that seemed to watch the group wander past below, or was sometimes seen pacing back and forth in front of the window. There was probably a simple explanation. A custodian, maybe, or just the strange glow of twilight playing tricks on the eye. After all, it was all hearsay. He'd never seen it for himself. Tonight, though, tonight was different. He'd finished another successful tour, leaving visitors spooked but happy. It was nearly midnight, and as the sound of the last visitor driving off into the night faded in the distance, silence descended like a heavy blanket over the fort. He did his usual rounds, made sure the doors to the buildings were locked, and everything was secure. It was always a little eerie being in the park alone that late, especially after a couple hours spent diving deep into the fort's haunted history. He was used to it, though. Except tonight, there was something in the air. It felt unusual, somehow darker, thicker. As he made his way back toward the entrance to leave for the night, something caught his attention in the upper level of Blockhouse One. A single jaundiced light shone from the upper window, and framed in the opening a solitary silhouette. He could make out neither its face or its features, but it radiated a sense of hateful malevolence, and he could feel its attention laser-focused on him, staring, boring into him. A wave of raw terror hit Kyle in the gut like a punch. He could feel the air leave his lungs, and he felt starved for breath, heart fluttering. He froze in his steps, not sure what to do or where to go. And for one insane moment, he actually contemplated running for the palisades and scaling the ten-foot-high wall rather than going past the building to the main entrance. Instead, though, he ducked into the brightly lit staff building to let his nerves calm. And when he finally emerged, the apparition was gone, and with it the heavy sense of dread. 
the fort now felt just like it did on any other night. Still shaken, he wasted no time heading for his car. And after that night, made a point of never glancing up into that window late at night if he could help it. Kyle wasn't the only one to have his mind forcefully changed from spending time in the fort. One of his friends, William Foster, had decided to spend his summer working at the fort. Like Kyle, his background was purely scientific, a physics major with a healthy commitment to skepticism. Throughout the summer, he'd frequently tease his co-workers about their belief in the supernatural. There was nothing haunted at Fort George, just a lot of imagination running wild. On a whim, though, he decided to spend his last night at the fort as a guest of one of the ghost tours, and experience for himself the creepiness of this ghost tour that had everyone talking. As the tour wound its way through the fort, past buildings he'd become not only familiar with, but actually kind of attached to, he decided to hang back a bit, to take a little detour to appreciate the place before heading home. As the group moved away, he relished in the silence, and a rare moment alone in the place he'd spent most of his summer. But the soft crunch of gravel beneath a booted heel startled him from his reverie. Maybe he wasn't so alone after all. The step had come from beside him. Close, he thought. But the shadows were deep now, and he couldn't make out anything in the darkness. Hello? he called. But the only response was several more shuffling steps, moving in his direction. Who's there? he called again. More footsteps. The night had suddenly grown cold and heavy. He turned and called out to the guide of the group. But they had moved too far away. And again, the only response was more footsteps. And they were moving quicker now and closer. He held his breath. But no figure emerged from the shadows. Not that he could see anyway. But he could feel the presence, feel the weight of the thing bearing down on him. He turned to run, but fear made his legs uncooperative, and he fell backwards with a yelp. The thing was almost on him now. Not a thing, though, so much as an absence. Shadow made tangible. He couldn't help himself. He screamed and scrabbled backwards in the gravel scraping and shuffling until his back hit the rough wood of a building, and he had nowhere else to go as the footsteps came within inches. He pressed his eyes closed tightly, and when he opened them, the tour guide was in front of him, a look of concern lining his face, flanked by other guests with similar expressions of confusion and worry. The oppressive feeling had retreated, pulled back into the shadows at the approach of the others. Still too shaken to be embarrassed, he let the guide help him to his feet and completed the tour without leaving the safe circle of the group. 
before leaving the fort for the final time, William left his friend with some advice. Be careful, he said. There are things in Fort George that don't like us here, that don't like us in their fort. Not all entities in Fort George are malevolent. One of the most common also seems to be one of the most innocent. It's also an apparition that appears to predate the fort by more than fifty years. Each ghost tour begins at the entrance to a small tunnel. As guests begin to assemble, the tunnel can get a bit cramped, so it's not unusual to see small groups hanging back before the entrance. Families with children, in particular, often prefer to keep back. Less chance of their kids getting lost or trampled in the crowd, I guess. That was true for one mother who had brought her two young daughters with her. As the tour began to fill up, they shuffled back out of the tunnel to the tail end of the group. It was dark back there, with the only source of light being the lantern in the hands of the guide at the other end of the tunnel. But her daughters didn't seem to mind too much. Still, they grasped her hands, one small hand slipping into her own from either side. They waited patiently as the rest of the guests arrived and the guide began the introduction. Then, the group began to shuffle forward to head to their first destination. Grasping the hands of her two girls, the mother started forward, only to hear a familiar small voice call out from the front of the crowd. Mommy, where are you? A chill coursed through her, and she looked down at her right hand. Only moments earlier, there had been small fingers grasping hers, comfortably, effortlessly laced between her own. But now she gazed at an empty hand. Somehow, the smaller hand in hers had evaporated, faded as though it had never been there, and she hadn't even noticed. Her oldest daughter emerged from the crowd to rejoin her family. She'd been with the guide at the front of the crowd the entire time, she said, and at the same time her mother was certain she felt a hand in each of hers. Neither the mother nor either of her daughters could explain it, but the staff at Fort George have their suspicions. Her name was Sarah Ann and she died there in 1740, at least according to a psychic who visited the fort, and then later a local genealogist who traced the girl back to a nearby graveyard. The tunnel hadn't been constructed back then, though, which is probably why she wasn't able to enter the tunnel with the woman. But she does like to hang out near its entrance, as many visitors have attested to. That only begins to scratch the surface of all of the otherworldly characters that call Fort George home. There are others, too. A soldier named Irving, the man in white who watches visitors from a bed in the barracks, and a grumpy-looking woman who likes to glare at visitors 
through the reflection in a particular mirror. There's lots to see at Fort George if you're interested in taking a supernatural tour. So, if you're looking for a nice romantic getaway, a little wine, a little theater, and an encounter or two with the restless dead, there really is no destination quite like Niagara-on-the-Lake and Fort George. But just be warned, as William said, not all of the spirits like visitors in their fort. We have three stories for you this evening, children of the night, the first of which comes from Paul Dickin. Paul Dickin has worked in academia and politics and now lives in a dark corner of rural England, where his fictions do less harm. He has written several books of philosophy and numerous short stories, and you will find him in unexpected places around the internet. Children of the night, join me for Paul Dickens' Scratch, 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 a Tales to Terrify original. I wake with a start. An old movie on the television bathing the room in a harsh flickering light. A black and white monster fills the screen, then a close-up of a woman screaming, hands clasped to her face. Change of scene, reliable men in suits talk calmly amongst themselves. No, something else. I wait, and there it is again, scratching, like fingernails against wood. I turn off the movie and sit for a moment, in the darkness, disoriented, listening to the howling wind. All around me, the house feels vast and empty. I pad out onto the landing and stop, unwilling to descend. It is dark downstairs, too exposed. Slowly then, one step at a time, and I think about the two girls who have been taken. In the village, there are rumors of a beast that stalks the moors. It isn't safe out there at night. The silence is heavy, weighing me down, and I can hear nothing but the blood in my ears. I leave a wake of dancing shadows behind me on the wall. And then again, but softly this time, scratch, 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 like fingernails against wood. I stop at the foot of the stairs. It came from the darkness before me, a heartbeat, two heartbeats. And then I slip across the hallway, weaving between icy puddles of moonlight splashed across the smooth marble tiles, and put the palm of my hand flat against the solid oaken door. The wind grows quiet, a gentle intake of breath. I take the key and wrench the door and stumble out into the night, and there is nothing there but the flat moon and the washed-out colors of the moor, and the soft whisper of the grass. The air is cool and smells of rain. I go back inside and refasten the chain, and only then do I see the freshly gouged claw marks on the inside of the door. I tense. There is movement behind me. Slowly I turn. One of the girls who had been taken, lying crumpled near the foot of the stairs. How had she got out of the basement? Please, 
let us go. Her voice is cracked, wavering. I shake my head. No. In the village, there are rumors of a beast that stalks the moors. It isn't safe out there at night. That was Paul Dickens' Scratch, 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 as read by Evan Morgenstern. Evan Morgenstern is a voiceover actor and comedy performer living in New Jersey and not telling people he's actually from Florida. When actually attempting to earn a living, Evan is a pension analyst. His voice has been described as every guy. Thank you, Evan. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Our second story tonight comes from David Sandwich. David Sandwich is a college professor who writes humor and speculative fiction in his spare time. His work has appeared in Defenestration, Sci-Fi Lampoon, and The Literary Hatchet, among other publications. You can follow him on Twitter at sandwichcomma_d. Listen with me, children of the night, to David Sandwich's Breakfast at the Mortimer's, first published by Jitter Press, 2019. Harry Mortimer got ready for work as quietly as possible. He tiptoed to the bathroom, used a standard razor in place of an electric one for fear the buzzing would be too loud, brushed his teeth. He skipped the shower, rolled on some extra deodorant and added a spritz of cologne to hide yesterday's menagerie of smells. When he was done, he walked downstairs and was surprised to see his wife 
Elaine Mortimer. She was in the kitchen, sitting at the table, waiting for him, her lips pressed together into a thin streak. Harry sighed. You told me you wouldn't do it, Elaine said. You looked me in the eye and swore on your life. Who told you? Harry asked. That's not the point, she said. You promised. Harry walked by her and grabbed two frozen waffles from the freezer. Have you had breakfast? Harry asked. I'm not hungry, Elaine replied. Harry put his waffles in the toaster and joined his wife at the table. You're right, Harry said. I did promise, but I shouldn't have. Harry took his wife's hand. He kissed it and held it under his chin. You know I have no control over my work, Harry continued. I have a boss like everyone else. She makes the decisions for me. Can't you talk to her? Elaine said with a crack in her voice. Tell her you don't feel comfortable with this job. Say you want to do something else. A teardrop ran down Elaine's cheek. Harry reached out and wiped it away. I've tried, Harry said. But once she gets an idea in her head, she doesn't give up. You know how she is. Very stubborn. The waffles popped from the toaster. Harry got up and put them on a plate. Drizzled maple syrup on top. She's a sick woman, Elaine said. That may be, but she's still my boss. And you can't argue with Mother Nature. But all those people, Elaine said. How many people will die? Harry rejoined her at the table and started cutting his waffles into small pieces with the edge of his fork. He smothered them in maple syrup. Order through, Harry mumbled, chewing his waffles. He swallowed a mouthful. Depends how many people are on the bridge when it collapses. Elaine gasped and wiped her nose with her sleeve. It'll be rush hour, she said. That's hundreds of people. Could be, Harry said. Could be more. He brought a fork to his wife's mouth. The maple syrup was dribbling. He spun the fork around to keep the syrup from reaching the table. Have some, Harry said. I'm not hungry. Please, for me. Elaine wiped her face and took a bite. She chewed slowly. Hey, you still love me, don't you? Harry asked. Elaine nodded, still chewing. Don't regret marrying me, he continued. Elaine swallowed. Not yet, she said with a weak smile. Harry laughed. You haven't lost your wit. He finished eating the waffles and cleaned his face with a napkin. So, tell me, Harry said. Who told you? Was it Bill? Frank? Nobody told me, Elaine replied. I sensed it. Harry grinned. That's what makes us a great couple. You can tell when I'm lying. Harry left the table. He turned on the faucet and squirted some dish soap onto a sponge. He began washing his plate and fork in the sink. Who will fix it? 
Elaine asked. Fix what, honey? The bridge. Who's going to fix it after it's destroyed? I don't know, Harry replied. Not my jurisdiction. Harry turned off the water and put the plate and fork into the drain board. The city, I guess. Maybe you can work for them. You know, fix things. Harry dried his hands. Darling, I have a job, and it's a good one. He chuckled. You act as though I'm the one blowing up the bridge. I'm not. No one is. It's just an old bridge. I'll just be there to pick up the pieces. You're right, Elaine said. I'm being selfish. Harry kissed his wife on the lips, hugged her tightly. No, Harry said. You're compassionate. That's why I fell in love with you. I love you too. Harry let go of her and kissed her forehead. He checked his watch. My God, he said. I'm going to be late. He left the kitchen and went to the front door. He put on his boots, reached into the closet, and threw on his black cloak. Elaine got up from the table and watched him get ready from the hallway. She liked the way he looked in that cloak. Can you promise me one thing? Elaine asked. And I want you to actually keep this one. Anything, Harry said. When you come home, I don't want to hear about your day. I don't want to know how everything went. Just for tonight, I want to pretend my husband has a normal, boring job. Deal, Harry said. Elaine walked to her husband, wrapped her arms around his hooded neck, and gave him a big kiss. Thank you, she said. Elaine reached into the closet and pulled out her husband's scythe. She handed it to him and whispered in his ear, Don't be late for dinner. That was David Sandwich's Breakfast at the Mortimer's, as read by David Dark. David is a lover of all things horror, from books to video games to TV, film, and podcasts. He currently resides in Ogden, Utah, with his large coven of acolytes, uh, his children. For voice acting-related correspondence, he can be reached at daviddark.vo at outlook.com. Thank you, David. Our final tale this evening comes to us from Eric Fomley. Eric Fomley is a member of SFWA. His work has appeared in Flame Tree Press, The Black Library, and Tales to Terrify. Lend me your ears, children of the night, for Eric Fomley's The Bodybuilders Club, a Tales to Terrify original.
I'm sitting in a van, sweating my balls off, waiting for the guys from the coroner's office to finish loading a bunch of dead bodies into the back for me to take back to the research institute. When they finish loading the van, they close the back doors, and one of the guys gives me a thumbs up. I think about flipping him the bird, but decide not to. This job's pretty crummy, and the AC in the van is broken, but at least it pays the bills. I shift the van in gear and drive down the alley that runs behind the city offices. I almost don't see the guy who steps out in front of me. I slam on the brakes and lay on the horn. Hey, what the hell, buddy? It's the middle of July, maybe 90 degrees outside, and the guy's wearing a trench coat, scarf, and some shades that look more like safety glasses than sunglasses. Maybe it's all to hide his pasty white skin. He comes slogging up to the driver's side window with a weirdly stiff walk. My apologies, he says in a deep, scratchy voice. Just take it easy, man. I could have killed you. He weirds me out, and I'm half tempted to roll the window up on him. I have a business proposition for you. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Not interested, buddy. I let the car roll forward, trying to get him to step back. I'll give you $60,000 in cash. I hit the brakes. What did you just say? He gets closer to the window and his breath stinks something wicked. 30000 in cash now. And another thirty if one of those bodies in the back doesn't make it to the research institute. He pulls a thick wad of cash from the folds of his trench coat. It's more money than I've ever seen at once. As much money as I make in a year in this job. He's offering it to me twice. That's all you need? Just one of these dead guys? I'll get into some shit if one of the bodies goes missing. But I could probably play it off like it was the fault of the guys at the coroner's office. And if they don't buy it and fire me anyway? Well, that was enough cash that I could take it easy for a while. Take my time getting another crummy job. It's hardly a choice. So what, you just want to open up the van and take it? I'll give you an address to deliver it to, on the edge of town, and my associates will handle the offloading and second payment. Do we have a deal? I look at that wad of cash and smile. Sure. He hands me the cash and pulls out a scrap paper and pen to write the address on. His hands look stretched. Like there's not enough skin for the hands. I can see the outlines of the tendons. I grimace a little, but I keep my mouth shut. Don't insult the hand that feeds you and all that. A pleasure doing business with you, he says as he hands me the address. And he spins and disappears out of sight down the alley as quick as he arrived. He was an oddball. Once he's out of sight, my heart starts beating fast and I forget about him. I was now $30,000 richer. About to be sixty. I punch the address into my GPS and smile. The address is on the rougher side of Centerfield. Broken pavement leads my van through a rusty fence to a steel mill with holes in the windows the size of small rocks. I don't see anyone at first when I pull in front of the building. Then a man and a woman, equally wrapped in mismatched scarves, shades, and coats like the man I met earlier, approach the van. I notice they have the same strange, stiff walk as the other guy, too. The man comes up to my window, dressed in a Hawaiian shirt with a black trench coat thrown over it. Thank you for coming. Here's the promised fee. 
He's pasty white and his voice sounds eerily similar to the other guy's. He extends to me another equally large wad of cash from the folds of his coat, and I find myself keeping quiet again. Can you return here tomorrow? He asks. I thought I'd play the whole thing off as the coroner's fault when I got to the Institute and dropped off the rest of the bodies, so his request catches me off guard. Uh, sure? And I almost forget to ask. Same fee? Yes. Damn. A few days like this and I could be sitting pretty for a while. But I didn't want to face my boss and catch some shit. Especially not legal shit. Just one, right? He doesn't answer me. He and the woman walk to the back of the van, open the door, and pull out one of the body bags. They close the van doors and drag the body across the little parking lot into a faded blue door on the side of the factory. It closes behind them. I sit there for a few minutes, staring at the door, unsure of what to do with myself for the decision I'd made. All parts of the situation are really strange, and I'm unsure of what kind of trouble I'll get in for supporting these freaky people. But I'm 60,000 richer, and no matter how much I'm not sure of what the hell I'm doing, I'm sure I'll be back for more money tomorrow. The coroner's office didn't act like they knew about the missing body, so maybe the Institute hadn't called and reported the discrepancy yet. Or maybe I got lucky and no one noticed. Either way, I return to the factory the next day for more cash, but this time it's more than the man and the woman. It's a whole group of stiff-walking weirdos. The same guy in the Hawaiian shirt and trench coat comes up to my window, and the rest of them go to the back and start offloading bodies. All the bodies. Hey, what the hell? You guys are going to get me in trouble. Demand went up. We've increased your fee accordingly. He lifts a silver briefcase, opening it up to show its cash-filled contents. A body here or there I didn't think would be too big a deal. For a couple of days. But emptying my whole van? I could find myself in some serious legal problems fast. I shouldn't have kept the job after the first one. I got greedy. I can't do all the bodies, buddy. You gotta only take one. Too bad. He shoves the briefcase into the window and it lands awkwardly between me and the steering wheel. He turns and joins the others as they pull the last of the body bags across the parking lot and into that light blue door. I feel sick to my stomach. Sick and irritated. Made worse by the heat. The hell was I supposed to do now? I didn't have a delivery to finish, couldn't return to the Institute empty-handed, or ever for that matter. I'd certainly be in some shit with the police. The Institute might not care too much that they didn't get one of the promised donated bodies. They might not even look into it, because any number of reasons could have changed in the coroner's office. But missing six? I was in some serious shit. The kind of shit that having twelve years' worth of my salary wasn't going to fix. I turn the van around, unsure of what to do next. But the man's words nag at me more than anything else. Demand went up. Demand for what? I'm going to lose my job, my money if I'm arrested, and maybe even serve jail time if I am. What's it all for? I have some time to kill before anyone expects me anywhere. I get out of the van and walk across the parking lot. The blood pumping in my veins is more out of frustration than anything else. I'd gotten myself into a real situation with these weirdos, and I'm not about to let them ruin me by screwing me over.
I crack open the door to peer inside and immediately pull away as the worst smell I've ever smelled assaults my nose. My stomach instantly turns and I have to hold my breath to keep from vomiting. I grab my shirt and tuck my nose into it. The smell of my sweaty armpits, a warm relief to that god-awful smell. I try peering in again and this time see that it's a dirty hallway lit by a single old fluorescent bulb. I step in and rest my hand on the door, letting it close somewhat quietly behind me, and creep to the other door at the end of the hall. Voices echo faintly in the hallway, sounding more like machines than people. I slip inside and the room is large and dimly lit. Whatever assembly lines were in the room before had been cleared away, replaced by metal tables with my missing bodies on them. There's a lot of people crowded around each of them, It looks like they're cutting them open with scalpels and knives. In my time at the research institute, I'd seen some of the insides of the human body, but never up close like this. I was just the driver. I hold my breath, trying to control the bile in my throat as I watch them open cavities in the chests of the cadavers and tear out internal organs. Whatever they were doing, it sure didn't seem like research by the way they carelessly dumped the organs in buckets on the ground. It's the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. Between that, the smell, and holding my breath, my heart starts beating so fast I can feel it in my eyes and ears. I want to look away. I want to get out of here before I see more disgusting shit. But at the same time, I can't help but watch. They start adding things to the empty cadaver, using what looks like an IV machine to dispense a gray liquid into the chest cavities and also into the incisions in the arms, legs, and heads in turn. They add things that look like machine parts, but I don't know what they do, and a green glowing cylindrical casing into the center of the chest cavity. Then it emerges from the dark. Not a man, not an animal, but a creature. It's slimy, like the slime of one of those stupid kid toys. A dark green color, no face and no limbs. It slithers like a snake from the darkness. One of the stiff weirdos walks up to the creature with a knife and stabs it, turning his knife until he's carved out a writhing, wriggling piece. Then he puts it in the green glowing chamber in the cadaver. I feel woozy, like I'm going to pass out. The cadaver sits up and speaks with that same scratchy voice. I puke. My breakfast splatters the floor in front of me and my dry heaving echoes through the factory. I stand and all of them are looking at me. A chill grabs my spine like an icy hand. I spin around and run into something hard. It's the woman who helped accept the bodies. She's not wearing sunglasses and I look into her dead, cadaverous eyes. You're not supposed to be here, she says in that same deep, mechanical voice. I scream and leap back as she reaches for me, barely dodging her hand, and run for the door, thankful as I slam into it that it's a push instead of a pull. I'm down the hallway in an instant and running to my van, trying to pull the keys out of my pocket as I run, which causes me to stumble and almost faceplant. Again, I'm thankful that by chance I had the van facing the right direction, pointing toward the road. I get into the van, slam the door, and jam the key into the ignition. I see something out of the corner of my eye and duck my head. The woman's hand catches my face, one of her fingers hook in the corner of my mouth and tugs my head toward the window. 
My eyes meet hers and I jerk away, her nails tearing my cheek. I hiss and put the van in gear. Something hits the back and my heart skips a beat as I realize there's another one on top of the van. In the rearview mirror, there's dozens and dozens more, all pouring out of the factory like a disturbed hornet's nest. I slam on the accelerator. The woman grabs the window with one hand and reaches at me with the other. She's not human. Can't be human. Whatever the piece of that creature did to her, it gave her the ability to be dead but living, and stronger than any living thing I'd ever seen. When she fails to grab my face, she grabs at the wheel, and I keep hitting her wrist away with my left hand while I try to keep control with the right. Finally, I punch her in the face. My knuckles crack and I scream. It was like punching a wall. There's thundering on the roof above me and a hand punches through. I gape. There's no blood on the hand, just shredded flesh exposing bone covered in gray. The shredded hand grabs at my face and I duck my head into the steering wheel, expecting it to be ripped off any second. The van hits a pothole in the broken pavement. It's enough to shake the woman loose. She falls beneath the back tires and it throws the van in the air and back down, hard enough that I hit my head on the ceiling. It hurts so bad I grit my teeth. I get to the end of the drive and turn the van as hard and fast as I can onto the main drag. The cadaver on top flies off, and I watch in the side mirror as it rolls across the street and hits a parked car, caving in the side. My heart's hammering, I'm hyperventilating, and my face and head ache. Warm blood streaks down my cheek and runs down my neck into my shirt. What the hell did I just see? What the hell was chasing me? Fuck all consequences. I had to go to the cops. They'd be after me. I had a feeling I knew way too much for the creature controlling them. I walk into the sheriff's office and the desk sergeant looks up at me with wide eyes. I need to speak to an officer. Someone's after me. Of course. Right this way. She takes me to one of the offices and has me sit in a plain brown leather chair. She asks several times if I need an ambulance, and I figure I must look pretty rough between my bruises, tears, and a torn cheek. She waits there with me until one of the deputies arrives. He comes around the desk to sit in front of me, and I see, just for an instant, an odd stiffness to his walk. It's like cold hands are gripping the back of my neck, and chills jitter through my body. He doesn't look pale, doesn't look like a dead cadaver or anything like the others, but he's one of them. I know he's one of them in my heart. The walk is too signature. But how does the rest of the department not realize? He must fit in too well. Or maybe the creature controls them, too. Is there something I can help you with? He asks with a deep, scratchy voice. I start shaking my head and stand. His lips curl into a smile. He knows he has me right where he wants me. Knows there's nothing I can do. I turn from the officer and run. Sir! Sir! Please! We can help you! The lady calls. I'm sure they could. Help me turn me into one of them. But I refuse to be part of their takeover. I'm back in my van, cruising through town, and it's like my eyes are open for the first time. The whole world is staring at me. The people boarding the bus, the other drivers, bike riders, the trash man on the curb. They're all watching me. I don't bother going home. They'll be there. I head out of town into the boonies, where my grandparents live. Who knows if they'll believe me? Who cares? I know what's going on in the world. I'll stay on the run, hide if I have to. Maybe they're only in Centerfield Valley. Or maybe they're everywhere.
We must be too blind, too stubborn to see what's happening all around us. But by the time everyone opens their eyes, the creature will have us all. That was Eric Fomley's The Bodybuilders Club, as read by Anthony Babington. Anthony Babington is an aspiring voice actor who looks just slightly off from how he sounds. From his secret volcano lair in Minnesota, he narrates podcasts and leases his soul to corporate America. He has previously recorded for Farfetched Fables, Starship Sofa, and The Cursed Inn podcast. He can be found on Twitter as at Aleph Baker. Thank you, Anthony. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. If you're not a supporter already, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content, to shoutouts and merch packs. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put a smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales. You can share your love of the show out in the world, too, with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will shoot you over to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy, custom, and curated designs but it's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, Brian Rollins, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we reanimate the dead with more Tales to Terrify. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. 
To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.